that you would open it with me uh, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5 here this morning in our series uh, we entitled Made Right. I uh, titled this morning's uh, message, Love is Not Blind. And uh, that's not just because there was a couple weddings this weekend. You know, there's that old expression, you know, when you go into marriage, you what? It says, go in with your eyes half, you know, uh, what is it? Go into them half closed. And when uh, you get married, leave them half open, you know, so to speak. And then, um, you know, it's one of those, you know, we make vows and promises on the front end of, of marriage because obviously if you were probably married for any length of time, if you made those vows or didn't have vows, um, you probably wouldn't make them later on. And, and I know that God understands that about our heart. And so he, we make these vows on the front end before anything has happened. We say, you know, in a marriage ceremony, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until such a time as we're separated by death. And we always remind couples that that death is to be of natural causes and uh, not inflicted by one spouse upon the other. That came from a statement that um, I've shared with you a few times that um, um, Larry King had asked uh, Ruth Graham, uh, the wife of Billy Graham, um, if she'd ever contemplated divorce uh, from Dr. Graham. And she said, absolutely not. She said, murder? Yes. She said, divorce? Never. You know, and, um, but this is, it's, it's, it's such a wonderful portion of text. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 here this morning and kind of really focus on three things as we get into this. And, and I know that uh, it'll speak to you like it does me. We'll read there. I'm reading from the NLT translation. And I'll read this, and then we'll open up with a word of prayer, beginning in verse 6. It says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time, and he died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word here, um, Lord, my prayer is just much of what we were singing in worship that... God, we would just grow in our understanding of your love, your love for us, because as we do, we, we couldn't help but fall in love with you. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is just very simple. Lord, open up the eyes of our heart, Lord, for all that you have for us. God, we love you, and uh, Lord, we want to, to fall more in love with you. And so, Lord, help us today. Help us to see you for who you are, Lord, to understand who we are in you. Lord, the plans and the purposes that you have for your church today. We love you. We give you this time. We pray for Nelson today. We pray that, Lord, he would know, Lord, his worth in the kingdom, that he would know his, uh, this, that he's loved by this church, uh, by so many in and outside this church that know him and have come to know him. And, Lord, we thank you for saving him. Thank you for sparing his life. And thank you for using him, Lord, in such a powerful way. Uh, Lord, to minister every place that he goes. Thank you that he has a heart for you. Lord, and we pray that you would bless his day. Lord, that you'd bless this next year of his life. Prosper him, Lord, as his soul prospers in you. Is our hope and our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
<clears throat> you know, there was a story that kind of captures, uh, you know, the essence of this text this morning. And it goes like this. There, there was a young girl in California who had been blind since her childhood. And no one seemed to, to have a desire for relationship with her but one boy who had befriended her while she was still in high school. Uh, he grew to love her very much. And there, uh, they were a couple for many years that followed. Until one day she received the news that a donor uh, had been found. And she looked toward to receiving her sight uh, as, as she had hoped uh, that she would one day be married. And that uh, as her and her boyfriend made plans for a future marriage engagement, she was overjoyed that because of the surgery, she'd be able to see uh, her husband on that special day. The surgery was a complete success. And when she was able to open her eyes, she wanted nothing more than to see her soon-to-be husband for the very first time. And when she saw him, she learned that he had gone blind. He still made his way down to his knees, took her hand, and he asked her to marry him. With tears in her eyes, she reluctantly said that she couldn't marry him, or she couldn't marry a man who was blind because that would be too much of a burden to bear on her life. The boyfriend went away brokenhearted, and as he left, he turned to her and he said, just know that I love you. He said, take care of yourself and my eyes. Says it was then she realized that she could now see because of his, and and it kind of reminded me as I that story I'd read it before and and it was one that you know just kind of goes in a file and you never really think about it. And then as I was reading this text this week and being reminded afresh of God's love for us in spite of ourselves, um, you know, it, it's such a, a a passage you know that when you really start to comprehend it, like I said, that I tell you this every week. You know, we think about, you know, revival and how so many have read the book of Romans and it's bought, brought them to a place of revival in their own life when they start to maybe for the first time comprehend the, the height and the width and the depth, you know, of God's love for us that's in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul would write and we kind of, you know, gloss over it, you know, that the kindness of God, you know, leads a man to repentance or, you know, in some translations, the love of God. And we were singing about it in worship, the power of, of love. You know, you can think about, you know, when, when someone loves you, um, you know, I, I remember growing up playing sports and, you know, the, the coaches that, that you had, that if you had a sense that they, they loved you and they cared about you, there was nothing that you wouldn't do. I mean, if they said, you know, run through this wall, you know, uh, you would do it. And, and other coaches could say the same thing and, you know, everybody would just stand there and you go, love, love is so, so powerful. And, and again, as we start to comprehend this, you know, it, it, it is life transforming. And, and so it's easy to, to think of, you know, Martin Luther's life, especially coming from a religious background. And you recall, as we studied through this, you know, the first three chapters, you know, of the book of Romans, the apostle Paul, you know, he has made perfectly clear right at the end of chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he did it in such a, a, a profound way that, you know, it didn't matter what angle, you know, that you come you know into church, you know, from, I mean, Paul nailed every one of us. I mean, whether you were the religious, you know, sinner, the self-righteous sinner, or you were just the, the rebellious sinner, you know, I mean, you actually were really good at it. I mean, everybody got lumped together in the same category as chapter three, you know, brought out that for all have sinned, all, I mean, it's just all, all have sinned. No one escapes it. And, and again, then as we'll find out in chapter six, and he says, then the wages of sin is what? It's death. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you 
kept nine out of the 10 laws or you broke all 10, everybody ends up in the same place. It's a, it's a death wish. And then there was this transitional chapter, you know, that we got to in chapter four. And it's where, you know, Paul introduces, you know, Abraham to us, the father of faith. And he does it to, to show us how we ourselves, not just Abraham, but just as Abraham did, how you and I move from being people who are governed by our flesh to being people who are pleasing to God. You could say that, you know, chapter four is kind of a preparatory, you know, chapter uh, for us and that it's going to take faith. That's, that's the step. Faith is the step between our own sinfulness and our righteousness that comes in our relationship with God. And so, you know, Paul's making, you know, pretty clear here that, you know, each step, you know, along the way is the same step that Abraham took along the way. And so we have Abraham to look to. And, that, and we understand as we studied Abraham's life, again, it makes sense to me, like, why someone like Martin Luther could, you know, read this over and over again and come to this, this just total awareness of God's goodness and his grace. Because when you start to realize, you know, why did God choose Abraham? What was it about Abraham? And there's nothing in Abraham's past. We talked about that. Remember that, that he was dead. He was lifeless. Uh, he was, you know, uh, impotent. Uh, you know, there was just no possibility that he could accomplish what God had promised for him. So the only way that this was going to be possible is if God did it for him. And it's the same thing true with me and you. If we're going to accomplish what God desires to accomplish in all of our lives, it's not because of who you are. It's not because of your background. It's not because of your education. It's not because, you know, of your upbringing. It's not because of any talent that, you know, you might possess. God is demonstrating, you know, that we're only good to him in the sense when we come to the place that we're dead. That's why the Bible says we must be what? Born again. Yeah. And, and again, it's such a difficult place, I think, for all of us to come to because in the true sense, we're still alive. It's kind of the argument that people have you know, about the Garden of Eden, right? You go, God said in that day, you'll surely die. And they go, well, we ate the fruit. And guess what? We're not dead. They weren't dead physically, but they died what? Spiritually. Their relationship with God, you know, was, was dead at that moment in time. And so, you know, Abraham takes this tremendous step of faith. Remember, God makes him a promise, right? And he tells him the promise is that his children will be as what? The stars of the heavens, right? And then what's the first thing that God does in Abraham's life? He gives him a son, right? And then what does he require of that one son? Is that he would offer his son as a sacrifice to God. And what did Abraham do? And this is the part that kind of gets glossed over. He offered his son. He was willing to offer his one and only son. And what does he declare in offering his son? Is that God somehow, some way, God could bring him back to life. That's faith, isn't it? I mean, you think about this, and I, I know this, and we've got, you know, second service, we've got two baby dedications. And it's interesting, you know, when you talk to, you know, parents, I mean, they, I remember seeing a thing on Instagram, it was really funny, it was about, it was an actor, and he was on a, like, The Tonight Show or something, and uh, he was talking about his love for his wife, and he said, you know, man, I love my wife, he goes, I would give my life for her, and he goes, there's nothing that I would not do for this woman, she is everything to me. I mean, I would make any sacrifice for her. And he goes, and then we, together, we, we created this beautiful baby. And he goes, and then I thought, you know, this woman, my wife, who I love, he goes, 
I would not think twice about using her as a human shield to protect this baby, you know, and, and, and it's got to go, wow. But it's so, it's, it's an amazing thing when you have a child and, and, you know, I had this conversation with my wife, you know, years ago, I said, honey, you know, I, how am I afraid? Well, there's no way to do it. I'm just going to have to express it to you and you'll, you'll have to figure it out. But we were having this conversation. You have these as husband and wife. I go, honey, if we ever get in an accident, something happens and you have to choose between me and the kids, you choose the kids. And she's like, I'm like, duh. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay. Well, I, at least I could say do it, you know. Uh, but no, but I said, you know, because of what she would have to live with, you know, to think that in, in a, who would ever want to be put in a situation like that where you'd have to choose who lives and who dies, right? And I go, honey, you, you're, you would, you take care of the kids. Now, if it was me, on the other hand, I'm going, I would save my wife even over my own children because my children were a byproduct of my love for my wife. I, I married my wife not to have children. I married my wife because I love my wife. And yet I see the difference in that. You know, they're going, well, but my, my, my children are a byproduct in the sense of both my, me and my wife, but truly my wife, my wife carried them. And so I know that, you know, when it comes to that, that place, you know, and they say, and you, you don't hear the expression, you know, come between a, a, a you know, a, a daddy grizzly bear and his cubs, right? You go, don't come between what? A mama bear and her cubs. And I've seen it. And I had a mama bear for a mom. All five foot nothing. 120 pounds of her, you know. I mean, she took on, I told you, Mr. You know, Moberly, my neighbor, six foot five. I mean, just a strap and just, I mean, looked like a you know, guy that could cut down a tree with his bare hands. And, and I'd thrown some rocks at a car that passed by. And he picked me up by my pants one day and He's carrying me across the street. My mom came flying out of the house and she wasn't at the zipper on his pants. That was her face. And she was with her face. She's like, you know, and she was going to, she laid into him. There's no fear whatsoever. And you know, to think they have that kind of faith, you know, at your one and only child and without hesitation to go, I will offer this child to God because I believe that God could raise this child from the dead. And that's when Abraham, in the truest sense, you know, what does it tell us? That he was a friend of God because what? He believed God. He believed God. And you and I become friends of God because we believe God. You know, chapter 5, you know, as we got into last week, you know, tells us, you know, some of what God begins to expect from us and what it would look like, you know, as not only how he sees us in Christ, but actually what he saw in us before uh, Christ. And that's where, you know, I really came up with the title for this, that, that love is not blind. Because he understood and he knows everything about us. But there was something that was so profound, you know, that is really a life-changing experience that, that I, I really pray that you go back and you study it on your own. And it was in verse 2, you know, that we studied last week, you know, where we, it says we have access into this faith by grace. And I shared with you that, that Greek word uh, in the Greek language, it's, it's prosagoge. Is, is it's spelled P-R-O-S-A-G-O-G-E, prosagoge. And, and it, it's such an amazing thing because what it's telling us is that we've been given access into royalty. We've been adorned. We've been clothed in righteousness. And we have this opportunity to be in the very presence of God, not, not going, oh, do you have an invitation? You know, uh, we went to a dinner last week and we had a table and we had eight tickets and and uh, I had a uh, wedding rehearsal beforehand, so I had the tickets. And 
So Jason's calling me. He's going, hey, I can't get in. I go, you can get in. They have the table number right there. Just say at Calvary Chapel. And he's going, they won't let me in without a ticket. You know, you have no access. So finally we have to call, you know, uh, Jason called uh, Dave um, and oversees FCA here locally. And so Dave, you know, because it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? It's just like heaven. And so they go, hey, let, let them in. You know, they, they, could, they could be seated there. But it's this access that you have before God never to be shut down. And I don't think we really appreciate that. I think we read it, right? And we go, oh, we can come to God. You've heard me say it from this pulpit, 24-7, 365 days a year, right? Well, how often could the Jews come in the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Once a year on the day of what? Yom Kippur. You know, here they are. There's a blood sacrifice made. And then your hope is that, you know, that God would accept this sacrifice and you could walk away for only one year. It didn't take away sin, but it did what? It covered it for a period of time. But Jesus, once and for all, the writer of Hebrews says, he did what? He took away our sin, making complete, full access into the very presence of God. That's why it says, come boldly before his throne of grace in your time of need. And we talked about that. When's the time of need? All the time. All the time. And yet you go, is it something that we take advantage of it? And I think if we're all honest, we go, no. The very presence of God. You know, Larry said it, you know, in worship, wherever two or three are gathered in his name. Well, there, there's a truth in that, but there's a greater realization that he's with you, <laughs> only one. And wherever you go, you, you cannot escape his presence. You cannot escape his love. It overwhelmed David so much. I mean, bringing tears to his eyes, and it should us as well, when we're mindful of ourselves. And so, you know, you think about it, you know. I mean, he sees us, like I said, we have this access because he sees us as royalty. He sees us as accepted in the beloved. He sees us as his children. He sees us as kings and priests, perfect in his sight. I mean, is that how you think of yourself, you know, in Christ? Complete, faultless before God. I mean, it can't get any better than what it is. That, that's the point that Paul's making. It can't get any better. In God's eyes, where you're at with him, there is no improvement, Okay. Now, there's improvement in us, right? Because we're still here and we're still growing. But from God's perspective, you're, you've already reached, you know, Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We're already there. And he treats us accordingly. He sees us, like I said, for who we are in him. And so chapter five, like I said, lays out for us, you know, what God expects as we come into this relationship with, with him. You know, the problem though that many of us have with regard to our relationship with God is that, you know, we expect more from ourselves than we do of God. And, and what happens with that is when we expect more of ourselves, then what do we do with God? We expect less from him. And that's where we miss the mark so, so much of the time. And many of our mistakes are made with God at that point. And, and here'd be the, the reason I would share that because what was Abraham's failure? And you think of this, I mean, he had a few, but his big failure was, trying to help God, wasn't it? God had made a promise to him that he would be the father of many nations. And then he has a son with Hagar, you know, and next thing you know, well, we've got all kinds of problems, you know, on our hands. And you go, but what happens? The same thing that happened in Abraham's life happens in mine and it happens in yours is we step ahead of God. Instead of believing God and trusting God, we, we come to this, and that's why it's not a Bible verse, but like I said, that was the first verse I thought was in the Bible because someone taught it to me. God helps those who what? Help themselves. How many thought that was in the Bible? Well, you, you heard that? Yeah, you go, I, I thought it was. Somebody said, that's not even in the Bible. And you go, huh, 
Well, somebody's, they've taught us that our whole life. But even if you don't believe that it's in the Bible, many of us, I mean, well-intending believers, you live your life that way, though. You go, oh, see, I got it. You know, that's why people struggle with the book of James. Faith without works is dead. You go, you know, I, I have to, I got to do my part. And there is a part. And the part that God has called us to, and why Paul brings Abraham here, it's what, like I said, drove Martin Luther to his knees. It's what brought about revivals when he realized the just shall live by what? Faith. Yeah, faith in God. What God has done for you, growing in the knowledge of what God desires to do in and through you. I put big, bold print in my notes here. God doesn't need our help. We need God's help. Amen? And it's so true. What does God see when he looks at you, when he looks at me? Because if you don't understand that, seriously, if you do not understand what God sees when he looks at you, it's going to produce a very weak form of Christianity in your life. Because you'll become what so much of the world comes. And you can see it in the life of believers in the church. Performance-based. Oh, that you'll love me, you'll accept me based on what I do, right? Instead of who I am. See, and again, and how does God see you? Based on your performance or based upon his? And that's where we wrestle. That's where we struggle. Our access to God was guaranteed not because of what you and I did, but what Christ has done for us, amen? And this is what Paul keeps bringing back, you know, that you are to remind us. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we are loved. We are acceptable. We are wonderful in God's eyes. We're complete in him. And yet, and here's the twist in this whole thing in chapter 5 and what we look at in these verses here this morning. While we're loved, while we're accepted, while we are adored by God, perfect in his sight, seated in the the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God knows everything about us, right? He's not blind. His love is not blind. His love is a choice. And, and, and you look at this, look in verses you know, 6 through 11 there. I mean, he, he lays out for us here the basis of his love and his choosing is not based on our doing. The just shall live by what? Faith. Look there in verse 6. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So you think of that. He, he's showing us three things here that we want to see. Verse 10, you know, you can go down, skip down to there. And it says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies. I want you to see that word enemies there. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Three things that we can understand that love is not blind, that God knows about us and yet still loves us. He knows one that we're helpless and that we're without strength. Secondly, he knows that we're ungodly that we're sinners and the third thing that he he knows about us is that we were his enemies god knows by by nature that we're helpless that we're that we're sinners that we're enemies of god and yet even with that full understanding he knew that beforehand he knew that before he chose you and yet he still chose you he still loves you I know this is a personal question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to really think about it today. I'd love for you to think about it all day, all day long. 
is to think like David, is to go, how much does God love me? Me. How much does God love me? And then look at the word of God and look for the stories of God loving individual people. See, we read John 3.16 and it says, for God so love what? The world, right? And, and I get that. And I think you understand that. You know, God would love the world, right? I mean, after all, he created the world. You know, you don't want to feel like a real failure if you go, hey, the whole, I, I created the whole world. The world is a disaster. And you go, but you're God. You go, well, I just have to love it anyway because, you know, I want to feel good about me. And you go, no, but he had a love for the world. God created the world. It's his creation. Then Ephesians 5, you know, we shared that, you know, in the weddings this weekend, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ loves what? Not just the whole world, but it says, but Christ loves the church. He loves his bride, right? That's all of us, right? Those that are in Christ. He loves the whole world. He loves everything, everybody, all of creation, because it's his. But he loves the church. He loves his bride. But does it ever get personal? Does it ever go beyond that? And I think that's what overwhelmed the Apostle Paul. Galatians 2.20. What does he say? He said, you know, Christ. He says, I no longer live. It's no longer I who lives, he said. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, he said, by faith. He said, in the Son of God, who did what? He said, who loved me, loves me, me personally, loves me and gave himself for me. See, until you and I get to that place where it's really personal, because like I said, just reading this text, right? You go, hey, for maybe, maybe an upright person, nah, nobody would really want to die for an upright person. But for a really, really good person, you might think about it, right? Because hey, you can get kind of hero status. You know, they might do an article in the paper about you. You gave your life for this wonderful person, right? But what does scripture say about Jesus? It says, Jesus it says, but while we were still, what? Sinners. We were the bottom of the barrel, the scum of the earth, you might say. And Jesus died for them. You know, wow, that's love. But see, then the focus doesn't become, this is where it starts to sink in. It's not the person who got saved. It's the person who is willing to die for that person. So the focus isn't on me. It's not on you, but it's on the one who loved us. And that's where Paul got it. That's why Paul said, hey, as I read you last week, you know, Philippians 3, you just let everything else go. You go, who am I? Nothing. I have nothing. I have nothing to bring to God that he needs. He is immutable. He is completely self-contained. He needs nothing he needs no one. He needs nothing from any of us. And yet in his love, he chooses us. And he wants us to grow in the knowledge of that love. He wants us to grow personally, individually, you know, in his love. And I start to comprehend that. And so then you start to read scripture. Can you think of stories in the Bible where Jesus demonstrated love to an individual? Because that's what he's wanting us to see. We see in the Old Testament, tremendous love for the nation of Israel, right? That God chose them. He provided for them. He protected them, right? And we, and we see this. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene, all of a sudden, he starts hanging around what? Publicans. 
tax collectors, sinners, drunkards, prostitutes, liars, thieves, lazy people, gluttons. I mean, every sin that you and I could comprehend and relate to, those were the people that Jesus sought out. And so as I start to read this and I'm going, well, wait, but, you know, to, to pull it into, you know, not groupthink, but individual, because that's what he wants. If, if you're going to become who Jesus ultimately wants you to become, it's when you understand his heart and his love for you as an individual person. That's why Paul would write, it's the kindness of God, the love of God that draws a man to repentance. That's personal. And I can't think of a better chapter in all the Bible than Luke chapter 15. You have the story of what? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So when you see and think about the lost sheep, it says there was a, a shepherd who has what? He has how many sheep did he have in the story? A hundred? It says, and 99 are there. One goes astray. What does he do? He calls his wife and he goes, hey, honey, he goes, yeah, you know, that one that was always wandering off. So finally he's gone. Whew, thank you, Jesus. The, that thing's gone. We don't have to mess with him any longer. Is that how the story goes? You go, no. It says he left the 99 and went after what? The one. He went after the one. Then you have a woman who has, who's poor and all she's got, is, you know, 10 bucks basically. And she loses one of them. One buck. And what does she do? Does she just go, hey, you know, I, I still got nine, still got nine dollars. She's like, no, no. She calls everybody, hey, come over. We're going to scour the house. We're going to take all the furniture out until we find what? That one dollar, that one. Are you, do you understand the point that Jesus is making here? Then he has the story of the prodigal son. There's two brothers. Two of them lose one. Two of them lose one. You don't go, hey, I still have one, Right. But see, we do that a lot, right? Well, I still have one. You go, no, God risks everything for the one. Everything for the one. And guess what? You're the one. I'm the one. And what we can just read over that and we go, oh, they're wonderful stories and, and not even understand the implication of what God is desirous to make is his love for me, his love for you on such a personal basis. I think it gets closer, you know, I think where maybe we start to comprehend it, you know, a little bit more. You know, I, I think of, you know, um, yeah, we'll come back to that. We'll get there in a second. So what do we see? When I look at this person, like I said, this Paul really lays out in such a, a great way here in, in chapter five, he's showing us, you know, the attributes of God's love and why his love is so profound because God isn't fooled by what he sees. That's one of the things in the world, right? There's, there's always a gimmick. I bought a, a baseball card uh, off of eBay and it was a Babe Ruth, it was a Babe Ruth baseball card. And this guy had this card and he said, so I, I emailed him and I said, hey, is it, you know, is it really this and this and this? And he says, oh yeah, yeah. So he says, uh, you know, I got one, I got, just all I have is this one. He goes, I'll sell it to you for 30 bucks. And I go, 30 bucks? I go, heck, I'd buy it for 30 bucks. So um, about three days later, I get uh, an envelope. And I open it up and it's got this card in it. I'm like, this is so cool. It's a little plastic thing. You know, Don just gave me one. My, my nephew played professional baseball, and Don had an autographed card from Brent Morrell. And uh, he gave it to me today at church. Well, it came like this, but it said Babe Ruth, and on the back it had a signature, right? So it's the thing. 
And then, uh, so I'm going through the mail, and I look, and there's another envelope. So I open it up. It's got another card, same exact one, <laughs> and same exact letter. And it just says, hey, Mike, enjoy the card. I'm like, I got duped here. <laughs> so I gave it to my sons. I go, here's your inheritance. And they both, they go, what? And uh, so I gave both of them the card. They were looking at it, and they're going, Dad. I go, and then they, they look and they go, dad, we both have the same card. I go, I know. I go, I'm sorry. It's not really, I go, but you know, it's a thought that counts. So, um, but God knows he, he's not duped. You, he, we can't fake him out, right? You know, you can fake some people out, but you cannot fake God out. He knows the one that he chose. He knows you. He knows me, the one that he adores, the one that he loves. And he recognizes what, what do we see there in, in verse six? that we're helpless, that we're helpless. He, he knew that, understand this, when he chose you, when he chose you before the foundation of the world, he knew that you were helpless. What does it say there? You know, in verse six, we were utterly helpless and without strength. That word helpless, you know, that without strength there, means without the capacity to produce life. The same way with Abraham, beyond the years, no life, dead. That, that's, that's how much faith this was gonna take you're dead. There's nothing in you that has the capacity to produce life. And I look at this and I'm thinking, okay, where do I see that in scripture? What stories can I read and relate to where I see Jesus helping the helpless so that I can understand that, you know, he's going to help me. And, and I think, you know, right away, the first one that came to mind was in John chapter four, the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, right? And, and when you understand that story, you know, the, the, the route that Jesus would have taken wouldn't have taken him to her. He went out of his way to be there. And when he got there, he was there, it says, at 12 o'clock noon. And he was sitting there. And when she came to get water, and the women of the city didn't come out at noon. The reason she came out at noon is because she was rejected by the other people of the city. They didn't want anything to do with her. They, she couldn't go out with the other women. So she came at noon. Jesus was sitting there waiting for her, one woman. And when she got there, he did something. He dignified her. That, the, that term woman is a term of endearment. He said to her, woman, he said, can you give me a drink? And it, and it totally, totally dumbfounded her. Because one, Jews didn't talk, you know, with Samaritans. And men very rarely asked women for anything. If anything, they ordered them around. And Jesus, being God, could have ordered her around, but he didn't. He humbled himself. Matter of fact, what he was doing was he was asking her if she could help him. And then he began to say, you know, if you knew who it was that asked you for water, he said, you would have asked him for water and he would have given you living water. And what did she say? Oh, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well. Not because she didn't want water. She didn't want the shame of coming back at noon as an outcast. And then what does Jesus say? She, he goes, well, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't have a husband. He goes, that's right. And the other five guys that you were married to and, and the guy that you're living with now, he's not your husband. And she's like, oh. you go, that, that's harsh. But what is he offering her? He's offering her life. He's offering her living water. One woman, one person. There, there's something that I start to go, okay, God is into the one. He loves the group. He loves the masses, but he gave his life for the individual, for me, for you. You know, I look in you know, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> They're at the pool of Bethesda. Remember the, the man had been lame 
for 38 years. And Jesus comes to him and he says, hey, do you want to be well? It's kind of a question, you know, you've been there 38 years. Maybe he doesn't really want to get well. And we know that about people, right? We try to serve people. Have you ever seen people all around town? They've got signs that says, you know, we'll work for food. And you go, hey, I'd like to hire you. I've never been able to get one to come to my house yet. No, I mean, seriously, I, I've offered many people jobs. Like, hey, you can talk, stop and talk to me. Hey, uh, hey, you can come over here. And they're like, well, could you just give me this? Like, well, you just said you wanted a job. I, I need some weeds pulled. Don't show up, you know. Maybe this guy really didn't care about getting healed. So Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? What does he say? He didn't say yes. All he had to say was yes, and Jesus would have healed him. He said, ah, uh, he said, you know, uh, when the angel you know, stirs the water, he says, I can't get there because there's nobody there to pick me up. And what does Jesus do? To the one, he says, rise, take up your pallet and walk. And then he says, and go later on, he says, go and don't sin anymore. Said, or worse things are going to happen to you. you go, wow. One person. And then the ultimate favorite, you know, in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. They don't bring the man. They don't bring the two, right? They bring the one because they're just trying to stump Jesus is really all they're trying to do. And they're going to just, they're just going to rake this one woman over the coals. I mean, they bring her naked before Jesus, just total humiliation before Jesus. And what does Jesus do? It says he stoops down and he writes in the dirt. It says in the accusers, it says one by one, they turn and they walk away. And then he looks at her. The one. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I have not. And he goes, and I accuse you not. Go and sin no more. The love of the one. See, that's what Paul is wanting to get at. That's what I want to get at today. Do you know that kind of love of your Savior? Is your, is your love today kind of a general sense, you know, that you see that he loves the world? Yes, he loves the church, which you're part of. But, but really you know, does he love me? Because I know me. And I know, I know what I'm made of. I know what I'm capable of. And then you go, whoa, 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 whoa. You do not know what you're capable of. I do not know what I'm capable of. Jeremiah, you know, makes that perfectly clear, right? Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It says what? Above all things. And who what? Who can what? Know it. Who knows it? God knows it. He knows everything about me. That's what we're seeing here. That's what he's laying out in chapter five. He's going, guys, you haven't tricked me. I knew everything about you. And I still went to the cross for you. I still love you. And it's that love that's going to transform me. It's not because you're going to try harder, because I bet I could get everybody in the sanctuary to raise their hand if I said, hey, have you ever tried harder and failed? You go, yeah, yeah. That's why our relationship with God is not based on me trying harder or you trying harder. It's based upon what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what will transform your life. That's what will create the performance that you ultimately will desire, not by holding on, but by learning how to let go and to let God and to trust him. And it's just, like I said, it's such a, a wonderful thing. I mean, you know, I mean, in all the things, you know, Jesus calls us to do. What does he say? Follow me. Follow me. He didn't say, go out and do this, do this, do this. He just said, follow me and I'll do what? If you follow me, he said, I will make you become what? Fishers of men. Follow me. That's what he said. Just be with me. Be with me. Get in the boat. If you're in the boat, guess what? Whether you want to or not, you're going fishing. <laughs> That's just what you do when you get in the boat, right? 
That's what he's saying. He's going, get in the boat. Follow me. You know, follow me. You know, it's, it's interesting, though. You'll have people, you know, we do a lot of testimonies around here in different ministries, and guys and gals will go, you know, and before I came to Jesus, I mean, you should have seen, you know, what I was, I mean, I was this, and I was this, and I was this, and I gave it all up, you know, and gave my life to Jesus. Like, 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 you know, wow, you did God a favor. You could have been something. Like, you know, I could have been somebody, but I'm following Jesus now, you know. And then I always, you know, love having that conversation with later. I go, what'd you really give up? And they're like, they tell me all the things. Hey, let me just help you. The only thing you gave up was hell. That's all you gave up. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And what will man give in exchange for his soul? All you had was hell. That's what you gave up. You could have had everything, and that's hell. Jesus is everything. Seeing people, oh, yeah, you know. And how much we'll settle for hell, you know. One in the hands, we're two in the bush. Because why? Yeah. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The second thing we see there is in verse 7, ungodly sinners. That's what, what God knows about me and you. Not only are we helpless, he knows that we are ungodly and that we're sinners. It says in verse 7, now most people would <clears throat> be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending his, his, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us while we were still, what? Sinners. Yeah. You think about that word ungodly, some of your translations has that. It means destitute of reverential awe towards God. It's a spirit that condemns God. It's completely ungodlike. That, that's what it's telling us. You're a sinner, ungodly. You are the antithesis, you might say, or the very opposite of God. And guess what? God knew that about me, and he knew that about you. He said, that's exactly what you were. He didn't go, you know what? man, they've got some really good qualities. If I just buffed them up a little bit, polished them up, they could be really good little Christian soldiers. No. He's going, you're dead. The only way we're good to him is when we're dead. Until we get to that place that we just, and you understand it just like I do. I say it all the time. You know, until we hit rock bottom, we'll never realize Jesus is what? Rock solid. Yeah. And it's so, so, so true. I mean, isn't that why the religious Jews hated him so much? Because here's Jesus doing what? He's hanging around, like I said, you know, wine bibbers and tax collectors, you know, prostitutes and sinners. Because <gasps> they didn't want the association. They knew it was in their heart, right? You know, but man, to openly, you know, hang around such people. You know, God loved the ungodlike. Why? What does it demonstrate? You think about that. If God could love the ungodlike, guess what? There's hope for me. Maybe he could love Mike. Maybe he could love you. Isn't that what Jesus prayed from the cross? Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, to think that God chose us, like I said, when we were worthless to him. Sinners, you know, when you think about that, that, that word sinners, you know, Matthew 9, 
12 and 13 says, when Jesus heard this, says the, the healthy, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. It says, then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but to those who know that they're sinners. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And what did Paul say? He says, and I am the worst of them all. He said, I am the chief of sinners. He recognized that. There, there's no shame in that because it was true. It was true for Paul. It's true for me. It's true for you. We deserve nothing from God except his condemnation. That's what we deserve, right? The wages of sin is what? It's death. Yeah. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And what is it? It's a free gift to all who would receive it. I mean, you, you think about it. Sinners, people. Well, I'm not a sinner. I mean, just look at how, how much of our world is dedicated to sin. If you think about it. Have you ever really thought about that? How much of the world like is dedicated to sin? Lonnie could tell you all about it. How many things have you had stolen out of your yard? You go, why do we put locks on stuff? I mean, lock companies, do those exist because of sinners? You know, how about security companies? Cameras. Yeah. Fence companies. I mean, th what, th what things can you, you know, why do we have the second amendment? You go, so much because of what? Because of sin, right? Sin. I mean, it's, it's big business. <laughs> you think about it. I mean, the, we think about the internet, you know, that, you know, most of, most of commerce that is done, I mean, think about this, this is a terrible statistic too, is, is, is due to pornography. The things that are consumed, you know, on, on the internet. I mean, wow, you think it could be a great business tool, right? A means of, you know, communication, FaceTime, you go, but, but to be used for sin. It's big, big business in this world. And the Bible says that Jesus came for that purpose to save sinners. I mean, think about it. Why does a, why does a cemetery exist? If there's no sinners, you wouldn't need a cemetery, right? Or mortuary or all this. I mean, so much of our world has to do with sin, dealing with the implications of sin. And yet, Jesus is fully aware that we're sinners who have failed miserably. And he still loves us. And then there in verses 9, especially in verse 10, it says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still what? Enemies. That's the third one. We were helpless, ungodly sinners, who are enemies of God. And says, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. I mean, God's love for us is, it's really, I mean, beyond comprehension. We can scratch the surface of it, but it's so deep, so deep, that while we were enemies, and that word enemy, you know, what does it mean? Think about it for a second. What does it mean? Exactly what it, what it means. Hostile towards God, you know, hateful towards God, enmity with God, towards God. That, that, that's what, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful, it's a strong word. And like I said, you know, Jeremiah 17, 9, when he says, you know, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? We don't. 
The natural man is so wretched. The heart of man is so wicked. We don't even know how deep it would go. And I think all of us at one time, you know, not comparing to other people, but we've all done things in our life. We went, I said, I would never do that. It was below yourself, which, which demonstrates our conscience doesn't even come from ourselves. It comes from God because no person even lives up to their own conscience. But the point is this, you know, by nature, you know, we fight against God. We fight against his plan. We fight against his purposes until when? Until that day that God breaks through. When he breaks through and our heart is truly broken for him. And we confess our need for him as Savior and Lord. And we're born again by the Spirit of God. And all things, as Paul reminds us, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if a person's in Christ, they're what? They're a new creation. It says, Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. Verse 11 closes with this. It says, so now we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I love that. He's not surprised, like I said, by anything that we do, but knowing all this, he still loves us. He still loves us. God knows, like I said, we have a nature that can resist him, that'll fight against him. And yet he's telling us here in Romans 5, he says, I know everything about you and I love you. I love you. That doesn't mean he approves of everything that we do. and doesn't mean that we're going to get away with everything that we do. If a father that loves his son does what? He disciplines him, you know, because he loves us. He'll chasten us. He'll chase us down. We talk about the hounds of heaven. You ever been chased by the hounds of heaven in your life? You know, yeah, all of us have at some point. And think, why does he do that? The greatness of his love. And so Paul would say, you know, because he's going to get into this in the book of Romans. He's not going to say, you know, he says, where sin abounds, you know, does grace all the more. And what he's saying is, you know, because of God's love isn't a license for us to sin. It actually has the opposite effect. When you and I finally come to the place and we begin to comprehend the love of God, something happens in our heart like it happened in the heart of the apostle Paul. I'll close with this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Paul would write this. He says, either way, he says, Christ's love controls us. In some of your translations, it'll say the love of Christ constrains you. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view at one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view and how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. 
Love changes everything. There's an expression, I read it years ago. It says, I see your eyes everywhere in the world, and I see the world through your eyes. That's what love does. You know, you see that. It's always from somebody who goes, oh, I saw this and it reminded me of you. And that's what God wants. As we fall in love with him, as we learn and we understand him, we will start to see his eyes everywhere in the world, and we will begin to see the world through his eyes. That's what Paul would write, and we'll read that later on in, in Romans, where he says, and be not conformed to the world, but be transformed. It's an inside-out job. Falling in love with the God who's fallen in love with you. Amen? That's what it's all about. Let me invite you to stand to your feet. Well, let's ask God today, you know, as we close, open up the eyes of our heart, God, that we would see his eyes in the world, and we would see the world through his eyes. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, for the, the opportunity uh, to gather as your church, to read your word together, to open our hearts to all that you have for us. Lord, it's easy to study this book of Romans and, Lord, just little pieces at a time and begin to comprehend in a deeper way, uh, Lord, why it's so transforming, why it's been so responsible for revival in the hearts of so many people. Because, God, we, we forget the things that we need to remember, and we remember things that we need to forget. And today, Lord, we need to remember your love for us, even in spite of ourselves. And that, Lord, that love would carry over not only from us, but, Lord, to other people as well. It starts to make sense to us when your word says to love God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Because as we do that, and your love begins to permeate our lives, we begin to love other people, Lord, the way that you love us. And yet, God, we can all recognize it's so easy for us to resist or to reject other people who aren't like us or, or who aren't in our group or our category or, you know, whatever group we might run with. And yet we're humbled today to realize, Lord Jesus, when you walked in this earth, God, you hung around with people like me, like us that are gathered here to demonstrate that, God, you love people. You love the individual. You're here in this place. And even those that would be watching on home today, that God, if we haven't opened our heart to you, your word says that you stand at the door of our heart and you're knocking. You don't break the door down. Love allows a choice. And Father, I pray that God would choose Jesus today. That we would choose to love you, to receive all that you have for us, knowing that when we do it, it changes us, Lord. It changes the way that we see the world, the way we respond to the world. And so, Lord, even as we were praying last week, we pray that God fill us with more of you. That's our, our hope always. It's our prayer always. We, more of you, less of us, Lord. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.